Hello, this is Haley Nauman, and you're listening to the Maybe Baby podcast. Today I'm going to be reading my 17th newsletter. It's called Xanax for the Human Condition, and I wrote and am now recording this one in Denver, Colorado. Um, So that means I'm still kind of crouched in the closet, but I am using a new mic today. So let me know if you think it sounds better because I'm feeling kind of like Ira Glass or something with this big black mic in front of me. Um, Okay, a little bit about this newsletter. This was, I'm trying to remember if I've said this about like every newsletter and maybe it's just indicative of my relationship with writing in general, but this was kind of a painful one to write. Um, I think by painful, I actually mean difficult. I was, I was going into this newsletter expecting to have a ton to say because I had so many notes. I, that's kind of how I write the newsletters. I take a ton of notes throughout the week and then I sit down with them and take a few days to kind of sort through them and and make something out of it. Um, so I had so, so, so many ideas about memory and nostalgia and kind of the emotional experience I've been going through on this trip. Um, as I've kind of mentioned in past emails, I spent a few weeks in San Diego at my parents' house, and then I went on a four-day road trip from there to Colorado to come stay with my sister. And so I've spent about a month away from New York now. It's coming to an end. And I've been grappling with what the end of this means. Um, Not only about like my sister moving away, which now feels more permanent since I no longer have this trip to look forward to, Um, but also just the sense that like, I don't know what's coming in New York and everything there feels really loose and unpredictable and kind of depressing. Um, I've been really sad. I've been like, I mentioned this in the newsletter, but I've been feeling like a kid who's like crying because her birthday's over. Um, it feels kind of childish. And, you know, I've been sort of reconciling that with the fact that I'm just really grateful I've been able to do this. So, you know, exploring all that in this newsletter was difficult because I felt like I didn't know exactly what I wanted to say. And I also felt like I had so much to say. And I also felt really emotional and therefore a little bit muddy in my own feelings. And I also, on top of everything, just felt like, does this even matter? Like, I'm so lucky I got to do these things. It was a privilege to to get to travel and see family and feel like I had enough health and resources and time to do that. So taking all of those complications into consideration, it does kind of make sense in hindsight that I was struggling to write this one. Um, it's pretty common that when I take breaks from writing, Avi will ask me how my writing's going and I will give him um, a very lackluster, deflated answer. <laughs> Something like, I don't know, I hate it, I think. I'm not sure. Who knows? Horrible, etc. <laughs> not sure what that implies about me, but that was definitely the case with this one. And I'm glad I finally got there. Um, this is one of those newsletters I feel like I could have spent so much longer on and there are already things I would change about it, but I'm trying to accept the fact that there's sort of a fast turnover with this newsletter and that's 
maybe what's good about it too, because I don't get so much time to sort of ruminate on a single topic and I just got to let it go at a certain point. So with that said, let's get into it. Maybe baby number 17, Xanax for the human condition. Good morning. Welcome to August, a month that we reached through the ostensibly linear passage of time in the year 2020. I wrote this newsletter in Denver, Colorado, where I've spent the last week with my twin nieces, changing diapers and doing ordinary things so theatrically I feel like I'm in drama school. I fly home to New York on Wednesday. Today's newsletter is all about the nostalgia I've been prematurely experiencing for this bright spot in a dark time, and I wrote most of it with a pit in my stomach that honestly felt a little overkill. The Cults of Remembering Last week, about three hours into a five-hour hike through the most beautiful canyon I'd ever seen, I felt a wave of melancholy I couldn't quite place. I looked up at the rock cliff stretching hundreds of feet above me, dotted with cartoonish tufts of green grass. I looked down at the river rushing over my hiking boots and into a green pool enclosed by rocks as giant and smooth as whales. I watched my brother and boyfriend in the water up ahead, laughing at something I couldn't hear. And I realized with the appropriate amount of disbelief that what I was feeling was nostalgia for the hike I was literally currently doing. The Narrows is a water hike through the narrowest section of Zion Canyon in southwest Utah. Andy, Avi, and I had stopped there on our thousand-mile drive from San Diego to Denver and had been urged by a friendly tour guide to book it last minute. Our road trip was motivated more so by safety than tourism, so it was surreal to find ourselves miles down the Virgin River certain we'd never be this happy again. Maybe that's why I was feeling prematurely wistful. I had this sense that it had all happened by chance, that of all the horrible surprises in store this year, we'd stumbled into a good one. Rather than a loop, the Narrows is an out-and-back hike, meaning that halfway through you turn around and hike back. This was part of the problem, because in the second half we couldn't recognize much, and I found this vaguely alarming. I don't remember any of this, my brother kept shouting at us over the water. He thought it was funny, but every time he said it, I felt a flash of despair almost equal in proportion to my euphoria. we just spent hours saying this was the coolest thing we'd ever done, and our memories were already disposing of it? I shook my head as if to shoo away the thought like a fly. It was surely a form of self-sabotage, thinking like that. But I'd become too aware of the, what this impromptu adventure meant to me, and now I was experiencing the significance of its conclusion in real time. The next day, an emotional hangover looming, I typed out an iPhone note of everything I loved about the hike. All the butterflies in Veiled Falls. Us comparing the hike to playing adventure video games, then laughing at the stupidity of perceiving the natural world through the lens of a digital imitation. The way time slowed down whenever we had to scale a rushing waterfall, our minds narrowing to the challenge of pushing each other up a slippery boulder, and then expanding when we'd succeeded to a sight so beautiful my throat would catch. Us joking about the idea that rocks are actually soft, but tense up when you step on them. Stretching out on a hot flat stone, tilting our faces up to the sun, water dripping down our legs. It was a long and happy list, but I was typing it out anxiously, as if I were being chased. When I finished, a memory resurfaced from my childhood. Me crawling into my mom's bed at night, on my birthday, and sobbing because it was over. I don't remember what we'd done that day or even what age I was turning. I just remember feeling bereft at the realization that there was no going back, that something fun was ending even though I didn't want it to. You'd think I'd have outgrown that sort of thing by now, but in my attempt to recapture the hike in my notes app, 
I sensed a similar desperation to deny the undeniable, to stop time. As much as I wanted to construe the act as commemorative, I knew deep down that it was fearful, that something was chasing me, and that something was probably death. This wasn't totally out of character. When I asked my brother to stop saying he didn't remember the hike because it was stressing me out, Avi joked that it was a very me thing to say. Earlier in our relationship, I told him I wished I could record everything he said so I wouldn't forget it. He used to laugh at that. But in time, I'm sure he's realized that I wasn't just flirting. My obsession with remembering borders on compulsion, one I know many people share. It's a fight none of us will win, obviously. But I don't think it's a coincidence that the same could be said of being alive. Documenting our experiences helps us find meaning in the chaos of living every second of every day, year after year, barreling toward oblivion, accumulating shades of joy and devastation and love and uncertainty faster than we could possibly understand them. The commitment is almost religious. It's a collective fuck-you denialism. But there's a falseness to it, too. A level of narrativizing inherent in picking and choosing what we remember, because we can't remember everything. Sometimes I think this is necessary. We recast the details of our past to get at something that feels more emotionally honest to us than a more sober retelling. Avi calls this the emotional truth, and uses it as an excuse to wildly exaggerate when he tells stories at parties. But wielded too liberally, this instinct can veer into self-deception. When we over-index on remembering our lives, or infuse it with the aesthetic of cinema, scoring the climaxes, editing out the in-betweens that make up a life, we risk inverting its utility. Instead of being an existential hedge against dying, it becomes one against living. We end up believing things about our former selves that weren't quite true, or doing it for the gram, or missing a hike before it's even over. In our search for meaning, we obscure it. I still enjoyed the hike. I'm still convinced it was the most fun I'll have all year, which is kind of a dark lens through which to view your experiences. I don't recommend. But over the next few days, I spent a lot of time staring out the car window, thinking about why humans are so drawn to and yet pained by nostalgia, and how the pandemic has changed our relationship to it. I feel nostalgic for a wider swath of ordinary experiences than I ever thought possible. Talking at close range, dilly-dallying in the grocery store, riding the subway. As civilian life ceases to exist as we knew it, an ambient sense of longing now connects us instead. And yet we're also watching as a delusional commitment to American nostalgia blinds so many to our current reality, with millions suffering to preserve a cruel nationalist fantasy. Obviously, the implications of the two are wildly different, sometimes devastating, but I think they belong to the same instinct. If we think of nostalgia as a form of anxiety, about loss, about the unknown, about our lack of control, it makes sense that the pandemic has raised the stakes, made some of us almost childlike in our desire to just make it stop. I felt that in the river, I think, at the end. A vice grip on a short story with a happy ending, like a kid who doesn't want her birthday party to be over. However inconsequential, the force of my own wistfulness was almost unsettling. I still feel it now, as I anticipate returning to my apartment in New York, uncertain about when I'll see my family again, or be as happy as I was laying on a big stupid rock. It's not a self-pitying feeling. If anything, I'm acutely grateful for the privilege to seek out joy in the midst of such turmoil. It's more like fear, that the tidy narrative of the trip will soon be over and that soon it will be time to get back to something far less comprehensible. I recognize this transition as one the world has been going through in a much more significant way over the last six months. 
Before COVID, there was a tidiness to our day-to-day existence that's since unraveled. And while the precariousness was always there, we're now unable to look away from it. It's on display, all messy and devastating, and our nostalgia, in comparison, seems quaint. In an essay at the beginning of the pandemic, Arundhati Roy urged us to view the pandemic not as a threat to what we love and understand, but as a portal to something better. I've been thinking a lot about it as I anticipate whatever comes next for me, and for all of us, however maddeningly unpredictable. Quote, Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew, she wrote. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our databanks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly, with little luggage, ready to imagine another world, and ready to fight for it. Okay, that's it for the written portion. But before we move on to 15 things I consume this week, I feel like you need to know that I got the hiccups really badly while recording that. And I tried to like push through it and ended up recording myself getting really angry every time I hiccuped mid-sentence. And when I listened back, it was cracking me up so much. I felt like I just wanted to include a quick one for posterity's sake. When we over-index on remembering our lives. (gasps) Oh my God. Oh, the joys of recording a podcast in a closet by yourself. Okay, let's move on to 15 things I consume this week. Okay, number one is this week's small good thing, and that is a digital zine by Sarah Phillips and Jared Gordon. I'm not sure it has an official name, but it's called vibeszine.cargo.site, or rather that's the URL. And it's kind of this ironic homage to the word vibes. Um, it just made me laugh. It's it's absurd and it's weird, and it's like rendered in this old school 90s style dot jpeg look and ultimately it's also kind of tender because even though it's sort of poking fun at our use of vibes it's also kind of appreciating the multifaceted nature of the word and the kind of culture that surrounds it and it ends up being kind of tender so it's definitely a weird small good thing and i recommend it to just kill some time and be delighted Number two is a new newsletter from the comedian Catherine Cohen. It's called My Sexy Little Email. And if you haven't heard of her, she's just like a New York comedian that has a, or used to have a weekly comedy show um, at a club in Manhattan. And I love her and her podcast, Seek Treatment. And she does really funny poetry on Instagram. And now she's releasing a book with Kanaf of, of her poetry called God, I Feel Modern Tonight. It's coming out next year. Um, and this email or this newsletter is um, a weekly dose of her hilarious and insightful poetry. Number three is the possibly universal but new to me knowledge that you can simply put your sneakers in the washing machine. Thanks, mom. Number four is a video from my friend Laura. It's a language expert talking about some of the people's language pet peeves and the bias and elitism that is sort of buried within them. Um, 
it touches on vocal fry, which is kind of a, one of the more common ones, but I really appreciate how he talked about like this, the elitism in people saying that you shouldn't use expressions like for all intensive purposes instead of for all intents and purposes. Um, just little like faux pas like that. And he talks about how there's actually tons of phrases that are considered correct now that are actually just mishearings of other expressions from like hundreds of years ago. And that this is just kind of the nature of language and um, harping too much on um, perfect accuracy is sort of missing the forest for the trees. Number five, the surprisingly useful Google results for does Walgreens sell menstrual cups? It does and I was in a hurry. Number six, a Zadie Smith essay from 2014 in the New York Review of Books about New York and the people who live there, especially this quote. You don't come to live here unless the delusion of a reality shaped around your own desires isn't a strong aspect of your personality. A reality shaped around your own desires. There's something sociopathic in that ambition. Number seven is the fact that animals in captivity actually prefer to search for their food than be given it. Um, I originally heard this fact in the book All Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. Um, it's a crime book about um, the Golden State Killer. Uh, so it doesn't really have to do with this fact, but I like the metaphor it brings up about human nature and our drive to search for meaning and endure hardship rather than just sort of be given things or had the easy way out, which I think a lot of us maybe on the surface think we want, but ultimately are not as satisfied by. So that one stuck in my mind. Number eight is the song Midnight City by M83. I uh, wish I could play some of it for you, but um, I think I would get in trouble for copyright or something. But anyway, we listened to that when we drove through LA. I inserted or embedded the song in the actual newsletter if you want to give it a listen. Number nine is a spoof Instagram account created by Charles Rogers. He's the creator of Search Party, and he's one of my favorite Instagram followers. He, for absolutely no discernible reason, created a fake senator named Anne Ranch. And it's actually just a bunch of stock images of middle-aged women with Steve Buscemi's face photoshopped onto it. And it's like a whole fake political account for this person who does not exist. And it's genuinely outrageous and also somehow barely satire. It's just genius. So if you don't know who Charles Rogers is, I'd highly recommend checking out his Instagram. He might not be for everybody, but um, I think he's kind of a genius. Number 10 is a piece by me and Christ. Um, it's in the London Review of Books, and it's called Is It Okay to Have a Child? Um, I just found it really impressively comprehensive and incisive, and it examines um, and in some places dismantles the arguments against procreating during a precarious time. Um, I don't know why I was so drawn to this topic, but I ended up reading a few pieces about having children. Um, it's not something that I'm like actively considering right now, but it is something that uh, my boyfriend Avi and I talk about a lot in terms of like what we want and when. And being around my sister's kids has made us think about it even more. I mean, that was always the case in New York too, but um, I think just being around it 24-7 has had us thinking more. Um and obviously, like the fact that life is so different right now and the world's looking more precarious while it's also simultaneously slowing down, it's just made me think a lot about um, having kids. So 
I um, read a few different pieces on the topic and found them all really unsatisfying until I read this piece by me and Christ and was totally blown away by the, um, the depth and thoughtfulness of the piece. So, a good read. Number 11. A good portion of a C's candy box, care of my California nostalgia, but most importantly, a piece of milk Bordeaux, the best chocolate in the box. Number 12 is Taylor Swift's new album, Folklore which I've listened to more than I care to admit. I feel sort of mixed about Taylor Swift. I was a fan of hers in the early 2010s and grew frustrated with her increasingly over the last 10 years. Um, I've never liked her kind of apolitical wielding of feminism. And she just frustrates me in certain ways. But there are things about her career that I've appreciated and about her music too. So... I definitely always listen to her albums when they come out. I always want to have an opinion and I like to just talk about kind of how um, like culture is responding to her. I don't know why. I just feel it like endlessly interested and fascinated. (laughs) But anyway, um, I really do like this album. Um, I love The National and I love Bon Iver. So maybe it was kind of tailor-made for me, but... um, it was a little moody and good to listen to in a car. And more than that, I think I was really kind of interested in her use of nostalgia in this album because it's a very, very nostalgic album. And she has a way of sort of spinning the past to make it sound sort of cinematic and um, surreal. And sometimes that feels sort of corny. Um, Like you can tell that she believe something was better than it was in reality because of the way that she's decided to remember it. And um, I also think that's kind of human. So I was, it just kind of got my wheels turning actually on the topic I ended up writing about. So it was relevant in multiple ways to my last week. Number 13 is a satisfyingly concise slideshow about the immorality of billionaires that's going around Instagram. It's has a bunch of facts about kind of helping you conceive of how much a billion dollars is and also um, recast some of the kind of common narrative around these uber rich people in a less flattering light that I think is actually quite fair. Um, my only addition is that I think that billionaires um, are the result of a policy failure and a country that consistently values profit over people more so than it's about a particular group of people being evil. Even though I think they are, I think it's um, the corruption and access to the uh, kind of ungodly amount of resources that's twisting them rather than um, them necessarily being inhuman or something like that. Number 14 is a lamp by a brand called Wooj. I think it's a 3D printed lamp, but it was served to me via Instagram ad and I'm always being served quirky lamps via Instagram ad. So just another notch in my belt but I love this lamp. Number 15 is the definition of the word limerence, which is, quote, the state of being infatuated or obsessed with another person, typically experienced involuntarily and characterized by a strong desire for reciprocation of one's feelings, but not primarily for a sexual relationship. I just thought that was a perfect and evocative word that um, I haven't heard much before, and I want to use more. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And um, 
Just one quick note is that a portion of all subscriber proceeds for this month will be going to the Okra Project, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, and the Black Trans Travel Fund, three organizations that honor, protect, and advocate for Black trans people. So thank you so much for being a paying subscriber, and part of your money this month will be going to those places. So um, I really appreciate you listening and supporting, and I will see you next week. Bye. Bye.